Daily Gazette Company presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Easy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me for the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. We're going to talk about a tradition like no other. No, not the Masters. The NCAA Hockey Frozen Four, the men's tournament, uh, is going is being in Tampa, Florida this uh, week, uh, Thursday, the semifinals of the Frozen Four. Uh, Dave Starman, who will be the analyst on Westwood One, will join me later to discuss the uh, Frozen Four. But first, we got a big lacrosse matchup coming up on Saturday as uh, Union seeks to try to right themselves. They're in a little bit of a trouble situation here. Uh, they take on RIT, the team that they faced in last year's NCAA Division III National Championship game. Uh, the Dutchman came up short in that one. And to talk about this uh, game on Saturday, what's going on with the Union Lacrosse Program and lacrosse programs across the Capital Region is our, our, our writer who covers lacrosse and the Stringing Sticks column, Will Spring sets. Will, welcome back to the podcast. And like I said, we have a big game here on Saturday at uh, Frank Bailey Field. Uh, RIT, the defending national champions, dominates the Liberty League, uh, facing a Union team that's hurting a little bit. They're hurting quite a bit. Their starting attackman, Peter Burns, who was a preseason candidate for a Player of the Year in Division Three, as well as Michael Shaw, another starting attackman, are both out. We're not sure for how long, but the games are adding up. And uh, their absence has put a big onus on midfielders Peter Kipp, Zach Davis, to pick up the scoring, and also in a younger, untested attack. And they're going to need goals if they're going to try to beat RIT. Yeah, I mean, they've lost two straight and three of the last four. I think it was the Middlebury game where the injury started. It, it was. That was Peter's injury. And then uh, Michael Shaw's injury came, unfortunately, very late in the uh, St. Lawrence one, uh, win. And uh, he's not been back since. Have, what, what is the uh, Derek Woodford, the head coach, how is he dealing with this, you think? I think he's trying to... Find talent quickly. He started freshman Emmett Line um, uh, in, for a couple of games, and he stepped up against Clarkson as he's finding more comfort. But I think there are a lot of guys who haven't seen a lot of time that are probably getting some minutes in practice now, and and he's trying to find out who can step up. Yeah, I mean they have to obviously have to rely on the goaltending uh, and the defense. I mean the, the game against Tufts on March 28th, they didn't score in the second half at all, which is very unusual for that to see that happen for a union team like that. And then they lost up at Clarkson last week, 9-8. So, I mean, how much pressure is on the defense to carry the load and try to shut down RIT? It's been on them since since you mentioned the Tufts game. That game, Dan Donahue, their third-team All-American goalie, made 21 saves while allowing 14. Now, it's notable because Tufts has been scoring gobs of goals. 14 was the fewest that they had scored all year, but it took 21 saves from Dan Donahue to do it. Uh, Again, this past Saturday versus Clarkson, he made 14 saves while allowing nine. And and I knew it at the beginning of the season, anything that Union did was gonna have to be defense first, but now it's really on them. We were talking how much uh, that RIT has dominated this series. RIT has won 26 of 29, and is a 21 game winning streak against Union. It's just, uh, it's incredible. But what is it about RIT that makes them so good? They're very well coached. Jake Coons has been around the game for so long. And uh, he has also done very well recruiting 
uh, Canadians. Mm -hmm. uh, that the, those RIT teams always have a lot of good, crafty Canadians, and uh, he's got some nice defensive players, and he's just found the right mix. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Rochester is pretty close to Canada, not that far, so I can understand that. Uh, what is it? What is it going to take for Union to try to pull off the upset and snap this long losing streak against RIT? I think they're going to obviously. We go back to the defense. The defense is going to have to not only play well but play within themselves and keep out of the penalty box because RIT. The one other thing that Jake Coons has always had is uh, the RIT Tigers have had a great man up. Uh, if you get in the box, they're going to make you pay for it. So they have to be aggressive and smart. The last win that Union had over RIT was on March 8th, 2008, 8-3. I mean, that, that's amazing itself. They held RIT to three goals. I mean, that, that must have been a tough year for RIT. But, uh, you know, last year losing a, you know, a tough one, 12-10, in that national championship game. Uh, what do you remember about that game? What, how, how close was Union to winning that? Union was very close, but not in the third quarter. They were ahead at half, and my memory is something like 6-4, 7-4, but the momentum was theirs. But then in the third quarter, RIT switched to a zone defense and found that that was Union's weakness. They've not seen a lot of it. They struggled. RIT took the lead. Union came on at the end, but by that point, they couldn't make up the deficit uh, that RIT had. Yeah, that 4 nothing third quarter RIT was a, was a, was a big factor. Uh, if Union loses game, how difficult is it going to, for the road to get into postseason play in the Liberty League? Let's not forget about NCAA for a second. Let's talk about Liberty League. I mean, how dangerous of a situation is it, is it for them right now? If they lose to RIT, they're not in terrible shape in that they have a win over St. Lawrence, which is now above them in the national rankings. So, again, if we project ahead to NCAA tournament, that's going to help Union. Yeah. Um, but if they don't find scoring, they're very soon going to face games against Ithaca and maybe even RPI. Mm -hmm. And certainly Ithaca always pumps in goals. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I think... They can lose to RIT and not have their world end, but they can't afford any other losses because Clarkson's much improved this year. Clarkson was a non-factor in the Liberty League last year. This year they are. So here's that team that's seeking to get in the company that they're in. Yeah. I mean, after the game on Saturday, Union goes to Skidmore next Wednesday for a game. The RIT game is next Saturday, which will be senior day. Uh, they do have a nine-leaguer, which will wrap up their home portion of the schedule April 19th against St. John Fisher, but they have to go on the road to Ithaca on April 22nd and Vassar on April 29th. So it, it's a tough road for them. It is. It, the the St. John Fisher team is always good. Um, right now, again, it's just a, a race against the clock to find some freshmen or some underclassmen, sophomores maybe, who didn't see a lot of time last year to step up, show me what you've got, and someone pump a ball into a net. Yeah. Well, let's stay on the uh, Union campus for a minute. The uh, the women's team has been playing pretty well. They're 6-2 and two overall, 2-1 two and one in the conference. How much of a surprise is this? This is a surprise. And, uh, I mean, let's face it, Union got the coach they wanted and Alyssa Trainer, and, and she'd been an assistant there, and she brought a lot of enthusiasm, and she's trying to build a culture. 
And I have to say, she's doing it quickly. They just beat uh, 13th ranked Ithaca last Saturday, 13 to 11. They received some votes in the National Division Three poll. Who knows how long that's been? I, I should check. Um, and they have some talented players and a freshman goalie who is relatively fearless in that. And that's a nice recipe. Yeah, they go on the road. They hit the North Country. This is like a Union Men's Hockey, Union Women's Hockey weekend. Go up to the North Country. How do they play consecutive games? I mean, I, they don't do it in the men's. Why are they doing the women's? I don't know that one. When, when I saw that on the schedule, I thought, what on earth, you know, inspired the Liberty League to approve? This? It's not the only one. I mean, they no, April twenty first, April twenty second. All right, they host RIT and William Smith. I mean, I, the, it, it's like it, it, it is crazy. Yeah. And in each of those cases. You've got a stronger and weaker opponent. St. Lawrence is going to be the strong one this Friday. Clarkson, okay, they can get by. But who knows how much St. Lawrence took out of you. And William Smith is second in the country in Division Three right now. So, you know, that that's no walk in the park. I mean, they could say that the women's game is not as physical as the men's game, but it's still physical. It's still yeah, physical. It takes getting, a lot out of you. Right. right. And, you're, and they're not... And the one thing we've always talked about, you know, away from uh, the show here, I've never understood in women's lacrosse how they do not wear helmets. They don't wear padding even. I mean, not, I, it's, uh, what's it going to take for somebody to realize, wear a helmet? I mean, someone's going to hit, hit in the head with a ball. I don't, I don't care if you're not allowed to, you know, shoot a certain way or anything like that, but how does that? I, I've never understood that. Maybe I, I've, I've never been a proponent of it either. And, and as I think I mentioned to you uh, off this uh, podcast, where I've seen it the most are face dodges. Face dodges are getting much quicker and closer to both defend to the defender's face because they are so athletic they can do it and the referees are letting it go because they've become used to quicker athletic players. But we're headed for some bad times, and I agree with you. I'd, I'd like to see them just give them some arm pads and helmets, and you're not going to slow the game down. You're not going to set it back 20 no. years for the old-timers who were always worried about that. I think it could handle it. Yeah, I mean, we, we, I mentioned we talked about this again. This is all, you know, just discussion here in the office that um, – uh, women's hockey they don't allow body checking but i've seen enough games where yeah they're they're hitting each other and i think i think if you ask that then they, they will do they will enjoy the having the contact because i i've always said you know sometimes the girls are playing in um boys youth hockey and they're going to be checking and i don't know so um but i digress but let's talk about some of the division one teams here let's start over you albany and the men uh what's their status the men are Two and one in the America East and three and five overall. They're coming off a good win over UMBC 12 6, which I wasn't expecting. I was expecting maybe they might win 12 6 yeah. through me. And, uh, but they've got another test this Saturday at Bryant, which is playing very well, uh, tied for top of the league. And uh, a road game against uh, a team that's tied for first, that's going to be a, a tough test for the Albany men. If they can win, they're going to feel pretty good about themselves and maybe not worry about that loss to Vermont earlier so much. I mean, are they in good shape to make the uh, American East tournament? I think they are in good shape with that win over UMBC. Um, <laughs> now, I would imagine your top four are going to be Vermont, Bryant, and then possibly Binghamton and New Albany. Let's uh, stay over there on the uh, Albany campus and talk about the women's program, 6-5 and five overall. 
on a two-game winning streak, two and zero in the American East so far. I mean, he had a big uh, conference opening win against Vermont. That was, and that was a game where their defense and uh, Coach Thompson mentioned the continuity, uh, which they had not shown. They had shown a very good offense, but a questionable defense. And that game it showed, and I think they had a much easier time over mm-hmm. UMass Lowell. So maybe they've figured some things out, and that continuity is what they're going to need because if you try to outscore teams, that's living dangerously. And uh, they, the Great Danes have a two-and-two two this weekend. They host UMBC on Friday at noon uh, as we get set for the Easter holiday weekend. And then number two, Northwestern comes to town for a 5 p.m. game on Saturday. I tell you, man, it's, it's, that's gonna, that should be a good game. But again, it's like back-to-back. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it, Why can't the men do back-to-back? <laughs> <laughs> it is strange. And again, we remember last year the men playing Syracuse and then on a Thursday night and then having to travel down to UNBC yeah. and they got shellacked mm-hmm. on a Saturday morning. Yeah. Well, here, again, you Albany women need to take a lesson from that and remember the game that is most important is UNBC. And if we have anything left for Northwestern, that's fine, yeah. but no one's expecting you to win that game, no. so just do what you can and take care of UMBC. Yeah, because the focus is more, it's more important for them to win the conference game than it is the non-conference game, because you, you want to get in position, at least be hosting, uh, maybe hosting, get a chance to host the uh, American East Tournament. Right now, I mean, if they you know run the table, they, they, they'll, they'll do that. They can do that, yes, and they did last year, primarily last year because Stony Brook was not playing, but I think this year, if they could host legitimately without the Stony Brook shadow being there, that would be a big feather in their caps. Let's go over to Loudonville and the start of the Siena men's team at five and four and three and two in the MAC conference, which is MAC has a lot, a lot of teams that we don't see in the basketball conferences and other other sports. But you got VMI in there, LIU, Sacred Hearts. I mean, it's a it's a, bring bring them all in. <laughs> <laughs> the, so, uh, the MAC has been very welcoming yeah. this year, and uh, and you know they've. It's funny, Siena has won a couple of games uh, that. Maybe at the beginning of the season, I thought they might have lost, but they also lost a couple games that I thought they might have won. Mm-hmm. So I remember uh, one of the players at Siena saying, you know, it always seems like the Mac is up for grabs every year, and boy, it does this year, yeah. too. Uh, Marist looked good, and then they lost, and Manhattan looked good, and then they lost last week. So it, it's just going to take... It's a marathon, not a sprint in the MAC. Yeah, of course, uh, the Maris will be coming here on April 12th uh, for a game that's, according to the Siena schedule, that's going to be on ESPNU, which Wednesday at 12 is kind of odd for an ESPNU game, but maybe that'll be good at uh, national attention there. But, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens there. Uh, we'll go over to the women's uh, team uh, and, uh, yeah, Excuse me, French. Uh, <laughs> my computer is not cooperating here as I try to put. There we go. There we go. Eight and four uh, are the Saints in three and zero in conference play. Uh, they're they're rolling right now. The Saints are rolling. Abigail Rafus has got a nice combination on that team. She's got Sabrina Krasner and Goal, a senior who's very veteran, provided great leadership, and she's got some scores. Mary Suris um, is uh, up in the all-time rankings there. Uh, we've got Jordan Bentley, you've got Kelly Logue, uh, a number of other players, and that continuity that um, that uh, you, Albany, was looking for, 
Sienna's had it all year, and they're 3-0. As we speak, it's it's late Tuesday night. They've got a home game against Canisius tomorrow. That could put them 4-0, and they'd yep. be halfway through the league. Yep. Um, that would be a really big thing if they could host. Um, yep. Pretty soon, I know they've got at Fairfield this Saturday. Fairfield's always been a thorn in Sienna's mm -hmm. side. Yes, they have. So that's going to be the key game, I think. Yep. So, uh, so it's hard to believe it. You know, the regular season's almost over. I mean, we're here early April, but I'm looking at at least the Siena women's schedule. The MAC tournament starts April 30th, and it's like, did the season just start a couple weeks ago? <laughs> it did. It did. And and I'm one of those uh, lacrosse cranky pants people that says, "What on earth are we starting lacrosse in the Northeast for in February?" Yeah. But... <laughs> No one listens to me. But then so. again, then again, they play soccer over in Europe in the winter time. So I, I, who knows? But uh, yeah, it's me. The sports growing. I, mean, I, 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 my lacrosse experience was box lacrosse uh, back in the mid seventies when the, it was the first incarnation of indoor lacrosse, and they had the Philadelphia Wings down at the Spectrum, and we had season tickets, and that was my first introduction to lacrosse, not knowing that they actually played outdoor lacrosse at that because I was a kid, so I didn't. We didn't have that much, but. Uh, um, yeah, but it's really it's a sport that's really grown, and uh, of course, you know, we'll talk uh, over the next couple of weeks here. But you Albany men will be hosting uh, the quarterfinals, uh, two games of the quarterfinals in May. So that's a big feather in the cap for the Great Danes uh, and school hosting that. That is, they've they've done it once before, and uh, <laughs> it's funny the the. Casey Stadium turf is probably up for a, a repair or a redo after this year. And uh, it, it's funny that we were talking with uh, some of the U Albany folks and like, we kind of wish the, the turf was a little bouncier, but you know what? It's going to hopefully be a good weather day. It'll be late May by that point. And the U Albany fans and the Albany fans in general I think will uh, really populate that stadium for it. As you mentioned, we're you know talk taping here late Tuesday night. Uh, what's on the chat for the uh, stringing six column, which appears every Saturday in the Gazette? Well, I'm I'm thinking about uh, talking to the U Albany folks. Um, Coach Scott Marr mentioned that his assistants played a role in last week's win over UMBC by kind of changing up the whole uh, pregame ritual, um, and that what he was looking for was more energy throughout the whole game. He felt that it waned and he gave a lot of credit to the assistants to just change the routine, but there weren't so many specifics. So I'm hoping to find out some of the specifics uh, because uh, you do need energy for all 60 minutes in a college lacrosse game. <laughs> yeah, that stringing six appears, as I said, every Saturday in the Daily Gazette print edition and it's usually online Friday afternoon and uh, we'll appreciate you with We'll talk again soon. Thank you much, Ken. All right, uh, we'll be back more with the uh, Party Shots podcast. We'll talk Frozen 4 hockey with uh, Dave Starman who will be analyzing the games for Westwood 1. You're listening to the Party Shots podcast. If you really want to know what's going on in your community, you have to read the Daily Gazette. We don't take a side. We're right down the middle and we're going to get to the truth. Our reporters and photographers are out in the field bringing you updates every minute with trust, accuracy, and integrity. From the first page to the last page, independent, probing journalism. We're finding out what's going on in the community where nobody else is covering. It's who we are. It's what we do. Want to get all the latest news from the Daily Gazette on your phone or tablet? We have an app for that. 
The Daily Gazette app allows you to read all the newspaper stories and columns from our dedicated team of journalists. The app is free. You can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Shenandoah Breer. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast and the Frozen Four is upon us uh, this weekend in Tampa. Uh, games on Thursday, the semifinals, and the championship game on Saturday. And uh, my next guest will be part of the broadcast team on Westwood One calling the action. Uh, Dave Starman joins us now to talk about the Frozen Four. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. And uh, how much are you looking forward to this one? This is really an exciting uh, Frozen Four we have on tap. It's, yeah, it's different. I mean, uh, you got the Minnesota BU thing, which is which is always good, and, and I think it's pretty cool because the last time Minnesota and BU actually played in the national tournament, I did the game with Clay Mappick. They played in the West Regional in 2012, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Minnesota smoked them. And so they, they'll get back together again, and there's some good history between these two uh, programs, and you know, I'll go into a lot of it on the radio, but I still have all of my notes from before that game because I remember talking to Jack Parker and Jack telling me how all the BU alumni are all riled up to get that game going against Minnesota with the history of the two teams and the old East-West conflicts from the 70s and the 80s. And, and I still I looked through the folder, and I still got my notes from talking to Dave Silk and Jack O'Callaghan and, and Mike Arruzzioni and, and Rob McClanahan and Neil Broughton about that rivalry. So I'll pull some of those nuggets out during the broadcast. But uh, my gosh, was that a... Was that a heated rivalry? And now I'm looking forward to seeing two of those traditional powers get back together again. See, to me, I think this should have been the prime time, the 8:30 game, not the five o'clock game, because you're going to have more, you have more eyes at 8:30 than you would at five o'clock. I I will generally never comment on how a rights holder schedules games. I guarantee you, there's more to it than meets the eye. But I I would agree with you. I think it's it's a little bit more of the two bright shiny object matchup in terms of big picture brand names but but i'll tell you what i i think this michigan quinnipiac game is is going to be really good and you know if you think back last year they played on a sunday and i was in the studio on that sunday and at four nothing i remember watching the game i'm sitting there with john brickley and andrew raycroft we're watching the game and the two of those guys were like this game is over and i turned to the two of this true story because you go back and watch the tape i turned to the two of those guys and said this game will be four three in 10 minutes and they both looked at me like I was nuts. And I said to them, guys, Michigan's playing like they've already won. And they got a cockiness and a smugness to them that I watched all year backfire. So that's number one. I said, Quinnipiac's not going to go out lightly because Rand is not going to let this thing stay this way much longer. I said, he's just too proud to coach. So I guarantee you this thing gets interesting before it, before it ends. And all of a sudden, it's 4-3. And... Then from there, I remember one of the Michigan goalies had an equipment issue and the officials didn't force him to go to the bench to get it taken care of, which the rule states had to have happened. And Michigan was able to take the air out of the building and take the air out of the game. And then they got up 5-3 and I, they didn't look back from there. and they, they kept control of the game. But I didn't like the way Michigan had played in the game. Uh, I thought Quinnipiac had deserved a better fate up until that time. And I think this year you're looking at uh, a Quinnipiac team with enough guys back that remember it. And I think you're looking at a Michigan team that I think learned its lesson. So this should be a great one. Well, let's start with that uh, uh, matchup at 830 uh, on Westwood 1 and uh, ESPN 2. Um, Quinnipiac, they've always been a great regular season team. 
But ever since they entered the ECAC uh, back in the, the mid-2000s, they've managed just to win one ECAC tournament title. I mean, they've been to two Frozen Fours, have not fared well in either one of them, got shut out by Yale in 2013, and were lost in 2016 to North Dakota 5-1. What does Quinnipiac have to do to get over that hump? I mean, they, they really have a, probably one of their best teams in a while. I think with Quinnipiac and – when you look back at their teams, I mean, they're always good. Man, they they play hard, they play smart, they, they get in your face, they pursue pucks. I mean, the, the blueprint has been there, and it just depends on the year as to whether or not they have the horses to run the race. And when you take a look at the ECAC, which you know certainly better than I do at this point, but you look at, you know, Harvard and Cornell are always teams that you have to deal with. There's always another team that seems to, to come up and, and rear its head and, and be be pretty good. So you, you've got a good force up at the top that that, that generally can make anything happen in a, in a one game knockoff. And to me, like Quinnipiac is the kind of team where if you get them in a one game winner takes all, I like your chances a little bit more than I would if you get them in a best of five or best of seven. Like I, I just I like the way Rand builds his teams, and there are times I think that his teams are built to win a playoff series versus winning a, a one and done. That being said. I like the way this team is constructed. I think they defend really well. I think they're a team that doesn't have stars, but has enough really, really good players to go end-to-end with a good team. And they're defensively they're defensively capable enough, I think, to force Michigan to have to do a little bit more than some of the other teams they might have faced from a defensive standpoint. Colin Graff, I have to talk, ask you about him. I mean, of course, as you mentioned, you don't see the East, much of the ECAC hockey. Colin Graff last year played at Union, had a good year his first year, um, but then entered the portal and ended up at Quinnipiac and had a monster year with 56 points. He was a top 10 Hobie Baker finalist. Uh, of what you know about him, what what do you think has helped him uh, get to the next level with Quinnipiac? Oh, I, think, I think part of it, and trust me, this is no disrespect to Union, but I think part of it is if you're a pretty good player and you're surrounded with other really good players, you're going to improve for two reasons. Number one is with the way college hockey is set up and the fact that you practice four days a week, when you're consistently practicing against really good players and getting many, many more reps against them than you would in games, I think that helps you get better as a player because now you guys are figuring some things out so that you could be a factor in practice and build some confidence to be a factor in games. So uh, I'm a big believer that when you're playing on a good team and you're playing in well-structured practices, that your ability to improve really goes up because of the fact that rep after rep after rep for seven months, you are playing against really good players and you have to produce because you're not going to stay in a lineup if you're not effective in practice. So I, I think that's a, a big part of it. I also like the way Rand runs practice in there. He runs a really up-tempo, really efficient, really competitive style of practice. And the reason that they're so good so early in games for most of what Rand's tenure has been is because they practice so hard during the week. You get to Friday night, you're shot out of a cannon. So I think for a kid like Graf, it was just a perfect recipe for him to take the next step because he wound up in an environment where that can happen a little faster. Yeah, and, of course, last year, the, the coaching situation, Rick Bennett's resignation, John Roder taking over as the interim head coach, and there was just a lot of distractions last year. But, I mean, I, as I said, you know, we were on the Hobie Baker call uh, last Monday, and I said, I mean, I, I thought he was going to be a good player. I never expected to see him do what he, what he did this season. I, I just, I'm a big believer that sometimes with a change of scenery, 
good things can happen. And, you know, the other side of it is this. Sometimes you get more eyeballs on you. There's that intrinsic pressure to want to be better, too. And the third part of it could have just been a maturity factor. And I don't mean to to insinuate that it's a problem player. That's, that's the furthest thing from what I'm saying. But it's amazing what difference a year can make in the ascension of a good player to a great player. And sometimes you just need that that one more year of maturity, whether it be physical maturity or emotional maturity, to be able to process what exactly is in front of you. Sometimes you start to see you're a year closer to the end of the road of your amateur career, and the urgency starts to hit you also. There's a lot of factors I think that can make a good player a great player. I think Graf just wound up in a really good spot. Now, Michigan, uh, they have a uh, Hobie Baker hat-trick finalist in um, Adam Fantilli, uh, 64 points on the year. Uh, what is it about him and this Michigan team that they've been able to get here? I think two things. Number one is I think Brandon Norado and Mel Pearson are a little bit different in terms of how they run a team. And I think that what Brandon has brought in is a little bit more of an adherence to we have to do some things that aren't going to look great to be able to do some things that are going to make us look really, really good. And it's funny, we joked early in the season when I did a game with you in Michigan and Penn State, he said, he said, Star, I just got to convince these guys that, you know, the gritty has to precede the pretty. And he's done that. And when you watch Michigan play, you see that they are dialed in to defend. They track back really well. Their sword outs defensively are pretty good. They can defend hard. They can get pucks up quickly. I mean, don't for one second think that the amount of skill that they have up front and their ability to possess the puck for most of the game is not a huge factor why they're so good defensively. But when they don't have the puck, they've really got a methodology to defend, to want to get the puck back, and to get going up ice. And I think the biggest difference between last year's team and this year's team is twofold. Number one is this year's team doesn't have a problem playing simple and laying pucks in, establishing a forecheck and scoring off of offensive zone play. That's number one. Last year's team, I don't think, had that mentality. And and number two is I think they've gotten better buy-in on the fact that if you sacrifice a little bit on one end, it's going to go really well at the other end. And for that reason, I think they're scoring in many more different ways because of the fact that they're getting pucks back in good spots and their transition's getting fed pretty well. Yeah. And then recently, Brandon had his the interim tag taken off uh, his title. Now he's the full-time head coach. Uh, what has he done to maybe reestablish the Michigan culture and you know, get it away from the the toxicity that ended up uh, costing Mel Pearson his job? I think he just came in with the mindset of, yes, I'm a Michigan alum, and yes, I played for Red Berenson, and yes, I played for Mel Pearson and coached under Mel Pearson, but I'm Brandon Dorado, and I've got a way that I think this should look for Michigan. And he changed some things. I mean, starting with the equipment manager and the medical trainer are gone. It's a, it's a whole new support staff under Brandon. And I think that is a huge reason why the culture has changed there. So that, that's number one. Uh, number two is, I think he brought in a vision of, yeah, he wants skill, but that skill has got to be accountable to the rest of the team in terms of how they play. Because last year, like if you gave me Michigan's veterans from last year versus Michigan's veterans from this year, I would take last year's one because I really like them. But this year, I think the younger players on that team, A, saw what last year went through in the loss to Denver and how ineffective they were for most of that game. And B, I think he has convinced them that, yes, while being a really skilled player is a really good thing, there is just so much more to it. And I think that has fed the culture of some of the Michigan teams that 
had a lot of success, and I think that they are now far enough removed from previous eras where Michigan hockey is now Michigan hockey under Brandon Narado, and it's not Michigan hockey under the legacy of so many of the great players and coaches that have gone through it. I just think they've turned a page, and Brandon has said, we want to keep the connection, but we're a different entity now. Yep. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll talk about the uh, BU uh, uh, Minnesota matchup. Uh, you're listening to the Parting Shots podcast. Hey, auto racing fans, the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest is back. Here's how to play. Pick the top five finishers in the weekly NASCAR race and get a chance to win a $50 ShopRite gift card. To play, go to dailygazette.com and click on the auto racing contest banner. The Daily Gazette's auto racing contest is run by the advertising department and not affiliated with the sports department. Hi, this is RPI men's hockey head coach, Dave Smith. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Shot. Welcome back to the podcast. Dave Starman will be calling the uh, will be the analyst for the Westwood One coverage of the NCAA hockey tournament, along with Brian Tripp of Penn State and, and anybody related to Shereen Starman. She related to it all. He... <laughs> We're roommates. <laughs> Yeah, they'll be on the call on Westwood One starting Thursday, uh, uh, so you hopefully get a chance to listen. Well, let's talk about this BU-Minnesota matchup. We mentioned earlier the history of the uh, hatred, uh, the rivalry back in when college hockey was a smaller entity. Uh, let's talk about BU and the job Jay Pandolfo has done. I mean, how surprised are you that they're here, they're back in, uh, in Pandolfo's first year as head coach? I, I will, I'll tell you something honestly. I don't think I had watched BU play since David Quinn was the coach. And so I like I am so pleasantly surprised by by what's happening. And I mean obviously I'm in the West more between when I was scouting professionally and, and obviously in the broadcast work, I just never really got a chance to, to see BU play a ton you know, once I stopped scouting and and, and once Quinny left. So this has been really nice to, to see them a bit this year. And, you know, Jay came in. I think Jay came in and did the same thing Brandon did. Like, he came in and said, okay, you know, yeah, we are BU, and we should be good, and we should have a certain identity and a certain look. But what worked in the 90s and what worked in the 2000s or even in the early teens, you know, it might not work now. And, you know, you're you're from the Philly area. I mean, you certainly know what the Flyers have gone through. I mean, everybody in Philadelphia still wants the Flyers to be the Flyers of the 70s. It doesn't work anymore. No. So I think Jay came in there and just said, hey, listen, we're, you know, we're going to be BU, but we're going to win the way BU did. And the way that that's happened is he has managed to get everybody there to be two feet in and not thinking about what their next team is going to be. And that got away from BU for a long time. And that's a problem with a lot of the big-name programs. But I think he managed to get them into a mindset where, guys, it's it's kind of about us. And if we're not all in, it's not going to work. You know the old Ben Franklin line, either we can hang together or we're going to hang separately. Yep. And I think he sort of convinced them that that's the way that they need to go. And when you watch them play this year in the, in the clips that I've pulled down from Instat, like there's just a there's a cohesiveness, there's a sharpness, there's, there's a shot-blocking component, there's an unselfishness to – to who they are and what they're about. And I think that's a big change. I mean, for the first time since I watched them during sort of Jack's later era and, and some of Quinny's teams, you know, I, I just, I like what I see from them just in terms of their methodology. 
And uh, freshman defenseman Lane Hudson le leads the team in scoring. Was a Hobie Baker top 10 finalist. Probably should have been in the hat trick finalist. But uh, what about his play? I mean, here's a freshman coming in and leads the team in scoring. And it, it, what an amazing job he's done. I think one of the coolest stories, and this will probably be the only one I'll let out of the bag before the broadcast. I think one of the coolest stories is that Lane Hudson and Sean Behrens of Denver who was also on the World Junior team, were defense partners when they were 9, 10, and 11 years old. Could you imagine that back in on a wow. 11U team? Yeah. And so the, and, and Hudson's dad was the coach. Oh, sorry, Barry's dad was the coach. So those two played together as kids. And when you look at the way Hudson plays, I mean, he's he gets his toes up north quick. He's elusive. He's slippery. He's so good on his edges. Like, he and Seamus Casey of Michigan really remind me of each other in a lot of ways. And I, and I think to... To be that modern defenseman, to be that effective defenseman, obviously you need some separation speed. You need the hands. And the thing that impressed me the most about him, he's got a really good ability to scan the ice and make the easy play. But he's also got the ability, if the easy play disappears on him, where he can make a harder play. And with his skinny ability and, and his offensive jam, it's, it's just so much fun to watch this kid play. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm glad I didn't do any BU games this year because the ability to watch him just as a, as a fan, as a coach, has been great because he has really reinvigorated my belief that playing defense is a great position to play because they can be so exciting to watch. And over at Minnesota, you have two of the three uh, Hobie Baker hat-trick finalists in uh, freshman forward Logan Cooley and uh, sophomore forward Matthew Nyes. If I'm not pronouncing the correct, that name correctly, you can correct me on that. But yeah, what about two underclassmen from, from Minnesota, what they've done, especially Cooley? You know, when you, when you watch Cooley play, and I've had a chance to call two Willow Juniors on NHL Network that he's played in, or I should say two and a half with one that got canceled. Yep. When you watch Cooley play, my knock on Cooley always was that he scored a lot of goals in the hard areas, but not a lot of them were hard area goals. Now, Gretzky didn't score a whole lot of hard area goals either. So, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not picking on the kid. Yeah. But he managed to score a lot of goals by getting into an area where he could score but didn't have a whole lot of resistance when he got there. And I think as the year went on, what Kuhn's been able to do is play a lot more between the dots, play a lot more in the corners and be effective, and play better with people on him. And I think that's been part of his growth and maturity as a player. And I'll, you know, I'll let a little secret in here. Pat Fershweiler, who was the assistant coach of the World Junior Team and the head coach of Western Michigan, I know from talking to Pat, that they had a lot of discussions on this topic. And I think what Cooley has learned is that there's a hard way to do things, there's an easy way to do things, and then there's a smart way to do things. And he has figured out a way to combine all three. And I, I think that's been a big part of, of his ascension. And Matthew Nyes, and you were on that Hobie call and I told this story. You know, I, I love doing the World Juniors for the one reason that I get some great texts from NHL people as games are going on, whether it be uh, former college players that are playing in the league, assistant GMs, head scouts, GMs, whatever. Uh, one of my favorites was I was talking about Nyes, and a GM texted me, and he said, Matthew Nyes is not the best player on this team, but he is the best player for this team. And when you get a GM to make that kind of observation about a player, you know you got a special kid in your lineup. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, I think this is probably one of the better Frozen Fours in a while. I mean, who do you, who do you expect to be playing on Saturday night for the title? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm not a big prediction yeah, guy, but I mean, <laughs> like, here's how I see this. I, with the Michigan-Quinnipiac game, my feeling is 
if Quinnipiac doesn't have to chase the game like they had to last You know, that's that's just one thing I see. I mean, I, I think I think Michigan's got better players. Don't get me wrong. And even Quinnipiac will look at their lineup and say, okay, you know what? They might have better players. But Quinnipiac's a pretty good team, and they're pretty disciplined. And I think they're built to give Michigan a real good go. On the other side of it with the BU-Minnesota game, I'll tell you what. I I think this game comes down to goaltending. I, I've watched a ton of Camesso and a ton of close. And... I'll tell you this, Tomeso worries me just a little. I, I, I think that he can lose sight of pucks. I think every once in a while his track of the puck isn't great. I think he's been a little susceptible on his glove side. And while he's great athletically and his structure is really good, he's given up a few goals that have been a little soft, in my opinion, that worry me. I know he's been really good lately. But if the if the Camesso, who is not 100% dialed in and bang on, isn't the guy that shows up on Saturday... Oh, sorry, on Thursday, I think that gives BU an issue to deal with that I don't think Minnesota will have to. That'll be a lot of fun. Let's get back. I want to talk about Hobie Baker a little bit. Because you sent out a tweet um, uh, last week, shortly after the call, about uh, are we getting away from the the true uh, thing about the Hobie Baker as far as the sportsmanship uh, and uh, the, the work? It seems like. I guess you're maybe you're insinuating that you know, we're, you know, we're more focused on the points than we are the character of the player. What did you mean by that? I, I think that listen, the Heisman Trophy is clearly okay. Where was the best player in college football? You won the Heisman Trophy. Like it's it's a talent based, stats based award, and and that's fine because that's what the parameters are. Mm-hmm. The Hobie Baker Award does have a criteria where character and off ice work and charitable contribution and that kind of stuff like that, that classroom, I mean, that all matters. And 99% of the kids hit that bang on and it's, it's never an issue, but it's, it doesn't get talked about enough. And every once in a while, when you get a player that may have an issue in that area, I do think that that's a criteria that needs to get reinforced. So as a committee, are we going to factor that in? And if you're scoring it like on a point system, if you're saying the kid's character is unquestioned, Okay, so that's three points for that player. But if there's a little bit of a question mark somewhere in terms of something that it did that season, whether it's too many game misconducts, whether it might be an off-ice incident, whatever, does all of a sudden maybe he only get one point or two points on that scale that you as a, as a committee member are evaluating? And one of the best examples I'll give you was Matt Fratton from North Dakota. Like Matt Fratton did really well in the Hobie race. And, and he managed to turn his college career around. But if you remember, Fratton got suspended from North Dakota for a while. I cannot remember what. I think he threw a TV out the window or something. He did something bad. Yeah. He rehabilitated his reputation. And that's all well and good. But should a rehabilitated reputation be the same as a player whose reputation is squeaky clean without an issue? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so to me, if we're going to continue to adhere to the criteria that is out there, then I think that needs to matter. And if it's not going to matter among the voters, then I think we need to take that criteria out and just award it to the best player statistically or talent-wise in college hockey. But yeah. we, I, I do think we need to make a decision. Yeah, and of course, uh, we have to mention Adam Fantilli, one of the uh, hat-trick finals, had 67 penalty minutes, three majors. So that that's not be like I mean, I, but we know it's hockey and all that, but you know, I think he's got a – and he's a freshman. Maybe he'll learn from this, but uh, – uh, maybe he has. He has, definitely has to cut back on you know, getting himself in, in trouble on the ice. I, 
and here's my thing. Like, I think Adam Fantilli is as good, if not the best player of the 10 that we discussed. I mean, the talent, there's no question. But you get into that side of it, and okay, so now there's a small question. And it's a small question only because the criteria makes sure that you address that question. And I like what a couple of the guys on the call said, and I tend to agree. I would love to have this kid as a teammate. I'd love to have this kid as a linemate. And as a coach, I'd love to have this kid in my lineup. I mean, for, for talent reasons, for the hard-nosed reasons, the whole bit. But that's not what makes you the Hobie Baker winner, right? That's we're, we're on a different criteria here. That doesn't exactly count. The Hobie should be awarded to the player that meets the criteria on top of their performance on the ice. And if there is a bump in the road there, I do feel that we owe it as committee members to the spirit of the award to at the very least bring the topic up and if nobody feels important enough, then we move on. Yeah. So I, one other thing I, I found fascinating about the top 10 candidates, uh, majority of them were underclassmen. I, we're, I think we're seeing a lot that more and more where underclassmen are, uh, you know, being the favorites of this. Is, I mean, is that good for college hockey? Yeah, I think it is. I, I really do. I, I Underclassmen are funny in college hockey because – the really elite underclassmen aren't there very long, so we might as well get them into some of these conversations early because we may not be able to get them into that conversation later because they're probably not going to be there, and that's just you know part of the the risk that we run. I I do love the fact that some of these younger kids are making a big impact because to me that is a huge credit to the youth hockey coaching community, which is responsible for developing so many of these kids and if the coaches in youth hockey are doing their job then we're going to wind up with more and more of these younger impact players because they're being trained properly on ice off ice and being being taught the right way to play the game so i i do think that is a a really good thing but one upperclassman that i don't think got enough attention on that call and i will tell you was in my top three was jason poland of western michigan and this is not an nchc thing Jason Poland early in the season was playing with Max Sasson and Ryan McAllister and two really good young players who I think both signed. And as the year went on, those two guys not only went cold, I mean, they almost froze, but Poland continued to put the points up. So basically he was the only guy on his line as opposed to one of three guys on his line. And when you're playing against teams in the NCHC who can really defend, I think his accomplishments went a little bit unnoticed a because he's playing for a program that doesn't have the same brand name as some of the bigger ones and b he i think did more with less around him in terms of five guys on the ice at any given moment that can make a big play that helps him than some of the other candidates that were on that list I, I was just a little i was a little put off that poland didn't get as much attention as he should have because he is just a wonderful player who had a magical season. Yeah. Of course, we should mention that Dave uh, does the analyst for CBS Sports Network's uh, NCHC coverage and does a great job there. Dave, always appreciate talking hockey with you, my friend. It's a great, uh, you know, I, I learn more each time we chat and uh, enjoy Tampa. And uh, we'll be listening to you on Westwood One. I appreciate you always having me on, Shotzi. By the way, we do need to do a podcast at some point okay. discussing the old days of the Skipjacks and the Bears. <laughs> I'm up for that, man. I'll definitely do that anytime. Maybe you and I will go to Hershey Park Arena and record that. <laughs> there we go. Absolutely. <laughs> Dave Starman, appreciate it as always, my friend. We'll talk soon. You got it. See ya. All right, that's Dave Starman. We'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winner in the Daily Gazette's Autoration Contest in just a moment. Meet Andrew Waite. 
He's a dedicated journalist with a passion for research and a commitment to getting all sides of the story. Whether it's a local issue or an upstate trend, I do the stories and interviews that shed light on what's important to you. Stay informed. Read Andrew Waite in the Daily Gazette. It's my job to offer commentary about what's happening in our community and what it means to our readers. The Gazette, reporting based on accuracy and integrity. It's who we are. It's what we do. Want to get all the latest news from the Daily Gazette on your phone or tablet? We have an app for that. The Daily Gazette app allows you to read all the newspaper stories and columns from our dedicated team of journalists. The app is free. You can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. Hi, this is Union College men's hockey head coach Josh Hoji. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 7 winner in the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest was Daniel Krapsey of Schenectady with 50 points. Daniel wins a $50 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Daniel. The VIP winner was Nick Platel of Grand Premier Tires with 35 points. I'll announce the auto racing contest winner's name, and that winner's name will appear in Friday's Daily Gazette. To play, go to dailygazette.com and click on the auto racing contest banner. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on how COVID-19 is affecting us in the capital region. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this situation. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated or a booster shot, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I want to thank Will Springstead and Dave Starman for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of the Daily Gazette company. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of the Daily Gazette company. I'm Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Shots. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.